Well, turn with me this morning in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. <coughs> We're just going to read the last four verses. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this short public reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. And my theme today is entitled, Suffering for the Saviour's Sake. Let's remember that the Apostle Paul is a prisoner in Rome. From a human perspective, his life and death is in the hands of the despot Nero. Nero was the ruling emperor at the time. He's a ruler who hates Christians and has murdered them for sport, even burnt them for human torches in his garden. And the Apostle Paul, of course, throughout his life and the day of his conversion in the Damascus Road, is no stranger to suffering. In fact, he says in verse 30 to this church, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. He has encouraged this church to remember that these things that have happened unto him have worked out rather for good in the sense that they have helped to spread the gospel. Souls have been saved and many people have been enabled and waxen bold and to take a stand for truth and righteousness. And he's exhorted this church not only to understand what has happened to him, but he has counseled them to uh, live out their lives as far as the gospel is concerned. In other words, he wanted them to, in the world, to, to be role models for the gospel. And now as he instructs this church on how to live, he adds another truth. There's another dimension to living out the gospel, and it's this. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. What he's really saying is that through your suffering, suffering as you live out the gospel, 
God will permit and enable you to bring glory and honour to his name. And as I think this morning of this text of scripture, think of the theme, suffering for Christ's sake, I want to set before you four things. I want you to think, first of all, of the prospect of suffering. If you look at the first word in verse 29, it says, For, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ. The word for can be translated because. And of course, the Apostle Paul is linking it up with what he has said in verse 28. If you look at verse 28, it starts with the word and. That's a joining word, a conjunction. So he's linking up what he's just said in verse 27 about this um, call, this counsel to be role models for the gospel, to, to live out the gospel. And then he says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God, for unto you it is given. The word adversaries reminds us of our spiritual warfare, about fighting the good fight of faith, about living out the gospel, remember, is not easy, because we live in a hostile, ungodly, anti-Christian world. And you see, if you're truly saved this morning and love Jesus Christ and are loyal to him and follow him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, you're going to face opposition in the world. You're going to face tribulation. Remember the Lord Jesus even said in John 16, 33, um, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now we could ask this morning who are the adversaries referred to and whole books have been written and commentaries page after page has been uh, penned about it. It's most likely when we boil it all down, certain Jews that the Apostle Paul has in mind. He says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision and that's a reference of course to uh, certain Jews who opposed the gospel I believe it's also a reference to certain Gentiles who were most likely not only antagonistic to the gospel but atheistic in their thinking uh, as well as agnostic in outlook and um, you see they seen these believers, these individuals who now were, were living out the gospel. They were in Christ. They were living for Christ. They were living through Christ. They had an eye to being with Christ. And because they're true followers of the Redeemer and they're in love with him, these certain adversaries see the church, see the individual Christians as narrow-minded people as being bigots, as being antisocial, as having strange values and, and strange views. And they see them as a threat to their own way of life. You see, life in first century young people, it was not easy to be a true Christian. The Christian life was hard. There was 
a despising of the name of Christ. And any identification with Christ made you a target for opposition, ridicule, and persecution. And the church in Paul's day, the church of Christ, faced a real danger. And the danger was this, the danger of following back from following hard after Christ. See, Paul's a realist, and Paul knows this. Look at the word in verse 28, terrified, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. That word terrified means to be spooked. You, you think of a, a horse and the rider, and they're coming down the road, and somebody comes up behind the horse, and they, they blare the horn. Now, what would that do? Well, that would frighten the horse. That, that would startle the horse. How would the horse react? The horse would, would bolt. And of course, it's illegal to do that. Don't ever do that if you're driving. Slow down. Pass the horse and the rider with care. But, but if that horse bolts off, it'll have no concern for itself, no concern for its safety, no concern for the rider. It could run through a fence. Uh, it, it could do um, irreparable damage to itself. You see, a spooked horse is unpredictable. And Paul knows that these adversaries have the potential to cause the people of God to pull back from not only sharing their personal faith in Christ, but pull back from standing up for Christ. That these adversaries have a purpose in their adversarial activities, and it's this, to, to shut the mouth of the church so that the church is quiet, so the church is timid, so the church says nothing about sin or, or anything of that kind. In other words, they're... Uh, suffering um, uh, against the church is designed to silence the church, to, to get the church even to the point where they, they question God. They doubt his goodness. They doubt his grace. They, they, they doubt his wisdom. They, they leave off uh, living out the gospel, begin to feel sorry for themselves and feel, do you know we're hard done by? Why has God allowed this? This is too hard to be a Christian. So, so they give up on Christ and they leave off following him. Now that's true in the very first century. That's what was happening. It's true now, isn't it, in the 21st century? Think of countries today where there is open, violent persecution and hostility to the church. You think of the true church under attack in places like Iran. Iraq. Do you know that there's 48,000 mosques in Iraq? You think of Afghanistan. You think of Pakistan. Think of places where ISIS is in operation. Of course, I believe this morning that Islam is a devilish religion. I believe it's a religion spawned in the very heart and mind of the devil. And let me illustrate, you think of a man or woman in one of these lands getting saved and they become a true Christian. Of course, the Bible tells us the Lord knows them that are his. But you think of the cost of becoming a Christian, shunned by the family members, maybe lose their job, denied basic needs, forced out of the town and countryside in which they were reared, treated as an enemy, disinherited, face hardship. Why? Because they love Christ. Because they want to live for him. Because they're loyal to him. Now, let's bring it closer to home. Think of modern Britain. 
Is there not an anti-God, anti-Christian agenda about today? You think of those that hold to true values and what we would call biblical morality. Think, for example, the traditional view of marriage between one man and one woman and say in public office that you're against same-sex marriage. Well, you're labelled a bigot. You're told that you're intolerant, that, that you're not loving and being kind and you're denying individuals equality. It's nothing to do with equality. We need to pray. And for those that say homosexuality is a sin and it's under the judgment of God and it's a sin to be repented of and there's a need to be washed in the blood of Christ, you're going to be counted a pariah. You even think of the recent court case here in Belfast against Pastor McConnell and all that he said about the religion of Islam by the Equality Commission. And that's only one area. You, you think of abortion. You think of the murder of children in the womb. I know that many can describe the child in the womb as a fetus. I believe they're wrong. Because that's saying that child is not a human being. And of course saying it is a human being is Bible based. And we have to label abortion for what it is. It's murder. And there's been 9 million babies murdered since the Abortion Act was introduced in 1967. Add into the mix then immorality. That, that murder is wrong. That adultery is wrong. Theft is wrong. Drunkenness. Child abuse. Domestic violence. We're aware that there's a, an explosion of immorality. And I only feel that it's going to get worse. And of course the answer is a true revival. But let's remember true revival involves a call to repentance. There has to be humility of heart and honesty that, that we have sinned. And of course governments need to be called to repentance. And I believe that's part of the church's job to call the government to repentance. And the church of course needs to be repent. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord and get right with the Lord. You think of the impact of apostate Christianity. It's sad that we're not all singing from the same hymn sheet. It's sad that we don't all believe the same thing. Many clergymen, many churches know nothing of the gospel. They know nothing of what it means to live out the gospel, to love Christ and be loyal to Christ. These are testing times for the church. The church by and large has lost its voice. There's a stigma when this opposition and this, this um, hostility arises. Many don't want to be different. They don't want to stand up. They're not willing to suffer hardship for Jesus Christ. They're not willing for suffering and they're not willing for, for sacrifice. We face many challenges. And we're going to face many changes as a church and as believers. And, and what is Paul introducing into the subject here? As he's talking about living out the gospel. Being a role model for Christ in the world. He is saying to them this, as he talks about salvation, that God is also giving his people an opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Not only physical sufferings from without, but also from within. Suffering ecclesiastically and socially and educationally and culturally and personally. In all of these areas, let's think this morning of the prospect of suffering. I want you to think, secondly, 
of the privilege of suffering. When we come into verse 29, it says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Think of his attitude to suffering here. The word given means granted. It's from the Greek word translated grace. Literally, it's a gift or a grace disguised. You see, all suffering in the world is under God's control. God is sovereign. Nothing's by chance. Nothing's by cruel fate. It's not um, mindless chance. It's not from an ogre or from a tyrant. It's not even from the anti-God mob and instigated by the devil or no doubt God uses him. But, But ultimately, all suffering in the world is under God's control. And God therefore has given the gift of suffering to the church. Just as he gave the gift of salvation, he has also given the gift of suffering. See, the devil's not in charge. The devil's not in control. And yes, all these things appear out of control, whether it's the push to change traditional marriage, the push for abortion, the explosion of immorality, and all that's happening in the world. And we acknowledge bad things are happening. And yes, it's painful to observe. It's painful to abjure. It's true in the life of the church. It's true in the life of a Christian. The life of suffering brings woe and pain. It can wreck the body. But it's not by accident. It's always by divine appointment. All suffering in the world is under God's control. And whatever we face, whatever challenges arise, let's pledge ourselves. Let's step forward and pledge ourselves to live for Christ and come with me. And, and, And let's say, well, no matter what happens, I'm going to suffer well for the sake of Christ because God is in control of this. God's people are to receive the gift of suffering as a gift of his grace and love. I'm often struck by what Job says in Job chapter 23. Job, of course, was a contemporary of Abraham, a very holy man, and a lot of strange things happened in his life. We'll mention a few of them in a moment. But this is what he says in chapter 23 and verse 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Listen to verse 14. Same chapter, for he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. You see, Job's no stranger to pain and suffering. He lost all of ten children. He lost all his wealth that he had. He lost his health. He lost the respect of his wife. Curse God and die. He, he lost the respect of good friends because they said that Job had secretly sinned and God was punishing him, whereas nothing of the case happened and Job said when he has tried me when he has proved me I shall come forth as gold for this thing that has happened unto me has happened by his appointment so so think of the attitude to suffering I want you to think also here of the argument to, to suffering if you look at the text it says for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake here's his argument We've been given grace to believe. 
true faith did not originate within ourselves. It's not something in naturally in our own hearts and minds. It's not something we work up. True faith is a divine gift. It's been given unto us to believe. It's the same word. True faith is a divine gift. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace he is saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible talks there in Second Peter 1 and 1 that we've obtained like precious faith. You see, it's not a work. It's God's gift. So is repentance. We were once dead in trespasses and sins, and then the Lord has come by his Spirit and quickened us. The Lord has intervened in his life and gave us the gift of faith to believe and the gift to repent, to be sorry enough to, to quit our life of sin. So salvation's all of God. It's all of grace. And Paul is telling this church here, not only has it been given as a gift to believe, but suffering has also been given as a gift. Suffering is a gift from God out of his love. Therefore, it's a blessed privilege. You see, God never acts out of hatred. He never acts to humiliate or despise his people. It's not to punish us. He doesn't act out of hatred towards his people. He doesn't do it to... Um, Ignore us. God always acts, only acts on the basis of grace toward us in Christ. God is always and only motivated by love and by divine favour and, and what's in line with divine holiness. So, so there's his argument. I want you to think also of his announcement, but also to suffer for his sake, his sake. You see, God only permits individuals to suffer as much as they can bear. Remember what Paul says to um, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. He says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as come unto man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. You see, God's suffering is always measured. There's a divine wisdom in God's gift of suffering. He knows how much you can take. He knows what we need. And he gives, I believe, according to the measure of faith. So maybe you're in school. and You're the only believer in the class. And you have many opponents who know you're a Christian and they taunt you daily. And it gets under your skin. And you want to lash out. Maybe it's true in the workplace. Maybe it's true at university. Maybe it's true in the home. You're a husband and your wife's not saved. You're, you're a wife and your husband's not saved. Your parents and your sons and daughters have no time for God or the things of God. Isn't it so true that when sickness comes, when illness strikes, we begin to doubt. We begin to query. We begin to wonder. We want to know why. And we begin to question God, his grace, his goodness, his wisdom. How could this happen to me? But let's remember what the psalmist said. Psalm 55 and verse 22. Cast thy burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. In other words, we're to cast it all on him. 
every burden, every heartache, every worry, every fear. Because let's remember that God only permits us to suffer as much as we can bear. And we're to cast it on him. Because our strength is from him. I said this to the young people on Friday night in the little time here at the Teens and Twenties Club. That not only are we to live in Christ and for Christ, but we're to live through Christ. And where do we get the strength from? It's through Christ. I was thinking of the Apostle Paul and all that he had to endure in this life. Because he said... Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. That means he was he was um, lashed um, five times, thirty nine uh, uh, times. So five thirty nines, and he says, uh, thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep, and journeys often in perils of water, and perils of robbers, and perils by mine own countrymen, and perils by the heathen, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, and weariness, and painfulness, and watchings often, and hunger and thirst, and fastings and often, and cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches." And, and how did Paul cope with that? Well, here's the answer. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. In other words, he learned to cast his whole burden on the Lord, believing that God's promise was true, that God would strengthen him and sustain him. I want you to think not only of the prospect of suffering, and I not only think of the privilege of suffering, Paul's attitude, this is God's gift, and uh, think of his argument. He's given us the gift of faith to believe. He's also given us this gift of suffering. And think of this announcement. It's for his sake. It's only as much as we can bear. Now, now think also, very quickly, the purpose of suffering. In other words, what's the purpose of suffering? Well, why does God uh, use this? It's for the good and benefit of his people. If it's God's gift then it can't be a bad thing. If it's God's gift, it's for our good. And um, Wednesday night we thought about Psalm 77, about Asa uh, and the problem of, uh, of, of suffering uh, uh, in the world. And we could also see the same truth from Psalm 73. Asa was wondering how the ungodly could prosper. And the, gos, the, the godly people have many painful experiences and many painful problems. And he says, surely God has been good to Israel. But as for me, my feet have, have, have slipped. Why? Because he thought about the prosperity of the wicked. And it wasn't until he came into the sanctuary, verse 15 of Psalm 73, that he understood their end. It, it, let's remember that if faith is a gift, then it's a good gift. And if faith is a gift and suffering is a gift, then it's also a good gift. And, and, and by faith, we, we have been drawn to Christ. We're in saving union with Christ. We, we're united with him. And, and there he is provision for us. And we can rest in him. If the gift of faith is good, then the gift of suffering has to be good as well. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me to have been afflicted, but now 
have I kept thy word. In other words, God had a plan. God had a purpose in this suffering for Christ's sake. And, and that was to, to draw the psalmist through affliction into a, a life of communion and fellowship with himself. I believe, of course, it's part and parcel of the Christian life. And uh, it makes us dependent on Christ. It moves us to declare and to defend Christ in the world. It causes us to have desires after Christ. You see, should Christ suffer for us? And should we not suffer at all for him? If the world hate Christ, it will hate us. And we're called to suffer. We're called to sacrifice. We're called to stand. We're called to endure hardship as good soldiers of the Jesus Christ. It's impossible to be in union with Christ and not of the world hate us. And if the world hates us, therefore we'll suffer. And that's all part and parcel of the Christian life. And God's purpose is to make us dependent on him, to, to cast her all in him if we have said, Lord, I, I trust you, even though I can't understand what's happening. It, it will deepen our fellowship with Christ. Um, remember Paul in Philippians 3 verse 10 will come to it eventually talks about the fellowship of his sufferings we'll begin to understand something of the wonder of God's redemptive purposes in the area of suffering we, we, it, it will draw us closer to him we, we, we realise that the sufferings of this world it can't be compared uh, with, with the sufferings of Christ will there not also be a willingness to Declare Christ, to defend Christ. You, you think of the Fox's Book of Martyrs, hundreds put to death in bygone days in the United Kingdom. Young people even willing to die for Christ. Think of the two Margarets over in Scotland. Their only crime was they had a Bible. They wouldn't deny Christ. You, you think of the martyrdom of George Wishart. God used it to convert John Knox, who was a Roman Catholic. And John Knox saw the life and death of a suffering saint. And, and he came with, away with this confession that Christ must have meant something to the man. Remember, he's a Roman Catholic. He's a priest. Then he got converted. The whole of Scotland was lit up for the glory and honour of Christ. See, what was in George Wishart's life was this. That he loved Christ more than anything else in the world. Even more than life itself. Christ was real to George Wishart. And that's what John Knox wanted. He had religion. But religion's not enough. It was, is Christ real to you? In other words, will you, will you be dependent on him? Will you be willing to declare and defend him? Even if it means death. What about sweetening our desires after Christ? Remember Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 4.17 about our light affliction. Nothing to be compared with the world of what awaits us in, in glory. He's weighing it all up in his mind. He calls it light affliction. Five times flogged with 39 lashes of the whip. Three times beaten with rods. One stoned. Three times shipwrecked. In prisons often. You see, the suffering that Paul endured made him long for glory. It made him Christ-like. It gave him a longing in his heart to be with Christ. Therefore, Paul talks about 
Not only the privilege, but the purpose. It's for his sake. Notice lastly, the pain of suffering. If you look at verse 30, he says, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Saw in me and here to be in me. See, that this church is asking itself the question, how can we survive in a world of suffering? How can we be sustained in a world of pain? And Paul talks here about having the same conflict which he saw in me. Remember, he's a prisoner in Rome under Nero. God is the one who sustains. God is the one who gives grace in the midst of it all. God will not abandon you. In the midst of it, he'll not fail. He'll not forget you. He'll not forsake you. And is not the testimony of the Bible? The three Hebrew children, whenever Belshazzar looked into the fiery furnace, he saw one like the Son of God. See, God gives grace to endure. Even Paul, remember his testimony was, my grace is sufficient for you. In physical infirmity, when he prayed for the Lord to take it away, what was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. Suffering for Christ's sake, it is God that gives grace to endure. Let's remember this morning to face the prospect of suffering. It's not if it happens, it's when. Let's think about the privilege. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And let's think about the purpose. It's multifaceted. And he's got as many reasons for allowing it. And, 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 and to, for us to, to be dependent on him and, and to desire him and to decide that we're going to stand for his honour. Let's think about the pain. How is it possible? It's God that gives grace. My grace is sufficient for you. May the Lord take these few stumbling, stammering words this morning and bless them to your heart.